I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 121. And today on the show, we're joined by Giannis Patelis, producer of the Meat Eater TV show, and we're discussing the implications of social media on the future of hunting. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are tackling an important topic, especially for this time of year. And and I know what some of you might be thinking, you know, it's hunting season, you want a podcast packed with hunting advice right now. And, And I get that. But stick with me on this one because I think in the long run, I think the topics we'll discuss today are just as important, if not more so, than how to get an arrow or a bullet into a big old buck. What happens when you do get that arrow or that bullet into a big buck? Well, for many of us, it probably means we're going to be posting a picture or a video or something about this animal or this experience on social media, You know, whether that's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or some other crazy new thing. I don't know about you, but I, I love getting to see all the big buck pictures and the updates from across the country this time of year, but at the same time, social media is this weird double-edged sword which in many ways is now leading to a growing spike in anti-hunting media attention and just a lot of kind of crazy stuff. You know, take, for example, the whole media storm created recently surrounding the Bomar bear spearing video and the whole Under Armour deal uh, or any of the recent African hunting photos that have caused various frenzies here in the States. You know, whether we like it or not, what we post online and how we present ourselves to the outside world, it's becoming a major factor in the future of hunting in America, in North America, and really across the entire world. So with that said, today we're joined by Giannis Putellis to discuss this kind of messy topic of social media, anti-hunters, the importance of non-hunters and how they perceive hunting, and a lot more along those lines. In addition to being the producer of Stephen Ranella's Meat Eater TV show, Giannis is just a just a very informed and thoughtful person when it comes to topics such as these. So I think the end result here is that we had just a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation that I think if you guys can take a little time today to, to dig into this one and do a little thinking, 
I think you'll find it really valuable. I hope you will. So with that said, before we dive into this whole discussion, we do need to thank our partners at Sika Gear for their longtime support of this podcast. And today's Sika story comes from another Sika employee, Alex Tannenbaum. And Alex came to hunting late in life. And in this story, he recalls one of his very first bow hunts for whitetails from a tree stand and a pretty profound lesson that he learned from this experience. As it's getting light, you know, I I see some movement and I'm like oh man, like that's a that's a deer. Like there are deer here. Like this is crazy. And you know, the 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 trail underneath of me, I thought for sure was like a cattle trail. It was just so heavily used like they're and they're walking straight on it. Like they're going to come like right under my stand and and uh you know, it's a, it's a buck, and I'm like, okay, it's, no, it's two bucks. Well, no, it's three bucks. Like, they're just hanging out together, and and uh, I have no idea what to do. Um, I'm, I'm going, like, you know, my heart's just racing a million miles an hour. I'm like, I don't even have an arrow knocked, you know. I, like, I, 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 so I'm like pull an arrow out and and uh you know and and it's a mechanical and so like the blades like pop out and I'm like Zah! you know so I'm like putting the blades back in and and uh get the thing knocked and I'm all shaky and I try to like stand up in the stand and I'm like just you know the whole stand is shaking underneath of me because my legs just like you know can't can't you know you just can't can't get can't get calm can't get normal and uh Ah, and and these things are they're just coming and coming and coming and I'm like oh man like they're well inside of 20 like I don't know I've never shot from a tree stand before I'm like wait like ang- like trying to think about like okay where's their heart what's the angle I should shoot at like you know like is 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 a as they're like as as they're coming straight at me like is that okay like can I nah, it doesn't seem like a good idea and uh you know like a frontal from above like nah like I, I I'm feeling like physics says that's a bad idea and uh so they're underneath of me and like I mean I'm looking straight down into like the basket you know like on each of them I'm like this is the coolest thing in the world and I'm I'm not even thinking about drawing my bow at this point like I'm just shaking that these things are here and they're totally gonna like you know know I'm here and and so then I'm like thinking all of like the the things that I've like heard and seen you know on hunting tv and like the very limited amount that I've you know seen you know, like, oh, you shouldn't look at them. Like, they'll feel you looking at them. And so I'm, like, looking up, like, at the sky, like, trying to, like, look at them with my peripheral vision. Like, somehow, like, I, I know that there's, like, no scientific basis for that. But, you know, just, just all the... Uh, all the superstitious... All the superstitious stuff, you know, that that just is flooding through my brain as I'm trying to figure out what to do with these deer. And... You know, and the the trail like never allows them to really like get broadside. Like they're like dead under me. Like they're walking away, like dead away. Uh, you know, and, and and like I said, coming full front on. And I there's none of that felt right to me. Um, and uh, and so you know, I just kind of let them walk and let them walk and let them walk. And they're just having such a like. They just seem like they're having such a like relaxed morning. And. Uh, about 35 yards out they did they kind of you know made a turn um 
might have been because I made some noise. It's hard to say. And uh, so I drew. And we are going to pause right there. And next week, return to Alex's story to hear how this encounter ended and what Alex learned from this whole experience. And it's a little bit surprising what ends up happening here. So that said, this was a Sitka story. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka gear and their technical hunting apparel, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now let's get back to the show and get Giannis Patelis on the phone. All right, with us now on the line is Giannis Patelis. Welcome to the show, Giannis. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, we uh, we already had an interesting conversation about uh, the Latvian Giannis's and various names <laughs> off air here a second ago. So Dan Dan shared, for everyone who's just tuning in now, Dan already talked about the fact he might be mad at Giannis, so keep that in mind, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but... Hopefully that's not going to be an issue, Giannis. We uh, we are excited to have you here. And, um, you know, I have been listening to you on the Meat Eater podcast for a couple of years now, I think, and have always been really interested in your perspective and what you had to share and your experiences and different things on those lines. So you're a guy I've wanted to talk to on this podcast for some time now. I guess, though, before we dive into some of the different sticky topics that we're going to talk about here, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing today in the hunting world, uh, and, and maybe how you got there? Yeah, you bet. Um, try to keep it uh, succinct. Um, I produce the Meat Eater television program, which is hosted by Steven Ranella. So I work for a production company called 0.0 Production. They're actually based out of New York, but we uh, have a satellite office now in Bozeman. So that's where I get to live, which is a pretty sweet deal. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what eats up most of my you know, so-called working time. Uh, I also do a little thing called Hunt to Eat on the side with my brother. It's just a uh, like a lifestyle brand kind of a project. We just... We basically make hunting t-shirts for those people that aren't happy with the hunting t-shirts they can find in the major retailers. Um, That's at least how I like to sell it. Um, And I guess how I got here, uh, I moved to out west Colorado at the ripe age of 18, skipped uh, after high school education and uh, just got jobs working in restaurants and whatnot and quickly got involved in uh, guiding elk hunts and guiding uh, fly fishing for trout in Colorado. And uh, that, if you kind of fast forwarded a dozen years, uh, and I ended up in Alaska actually for a job of my wife's. And uh, from there, just through some random, very random small world type stuff, um, met uh, uh, Met Steve Ranella and uh, ended up getting hired on as uh, what we call a WPA, which is a wilderness production assistant, um, which is a a position that's kind of uh, unique to Meteor. I mean, I mean, I'm sure other production companies have that position, but I think we were kind of the ones that coined uh, WPA. So anyways, you basically start out as just a gear mule. And uh, that was almost exactly four years ago, four years ago and maybe a month that uh, I basically hauled up a, you know, 75 pound pack up a mountain a few times. And uh, four years later, you know, I've produced the television program. Um, So is that going to give you a good enough background? Yeah. How old are you? 
38 years old. 38, okay. Yep. Married for, oh boy, <laughs> approximately 13 years. Wow. And uh, uh, father of two, <laughs> two, two awesome girls. Um, one just turned five, and the uh, youngest is about to turn three here in December. Wow. Awesome. Now, here's the question I have. You and me, we, we grabbed barbecue one day this summer in Bozeman, and yeah. you told me that you traveled. I, I'm going to get the number wrong. It was like an astronomically high number. I don't. It was like 150 days or something crazy. So my question is, A, what is that number, and then how do you pull that off with the wife and kids? Because me and Dan both need some advice on that front. Yeah. Um, well, I think first and foremost, like with the wives, that you have to – you know, set the expectations before you get involved in something like that. And, um, it worked out really well for me. We actually talked a lot about this last week. We were on a moose hunt and, um, you can, if anybody that's been moose hunt knows you kind of sit around a lot and wait for the moose to show up. You don't really go chasing around. So we had a lot of time to talk and my dad was there and Steve was there and we talked a lot about these relationships. And, uh, I was, I was, we were trying to, I guess, prophesize, you know, or, or wonder if we prophesied when we met our counterparts, um, or our, you know, not our counterparts, but our, um, you know, uh, other halves, if you could ever like, you know, guess how good or bad it might be, you know, cause I got married at like 24 years of age. So there's like no way I could have possibly been like, Oh yeah, it's going to be great in 15 years. You know, there's just like <laughs> no way that I knew that. Like I'm just, I just wasn't smart enough, you know, and, and didn't have that kind of foresight. And so I definitely, I feel like I got really lucky, but anyways, I got really lucky in the fact that like my wife spent a lot of time in the field and was away from me in the summers. And then I would leave in the fall and so it just kind of was always a part of our life, um, the fact that we had large chunks of time away. And it's evolved over the years. Um, but now that I'm gone, roughly 100 days a year, you know, shooting meat eater. Um, and it might be a little bit more. I haven't actually done a count um, in a couple of years. So it might be a little bit more now because we travel a little bit for the podcast and um, shot show stuff like that eats up some time too. But it's just always been a part of our lives. And the way I guess we look at it is that that affords us the ability to have um, just a very interesting life at home when I am at home. And it affords us um, the ability for my wife to stay at home with the kids and raise our kids, which is um, you know huge in our book, that they get to spend that much time with their mother. Um and when I am home, you know, they're like, dude, what, what just happened on the latest adventure, you know? And I'm right. at home telling them about moose hunts and, you know, wolverine sightings and grizzly bear sightings and, you know, sleeping out in the, you know, on the dirt for nine straight days and, you know, flying around in super cubs. And uh, it just makes for an engaging conversation. So um, I don't know if that's better or worse than every day of the week, you know, and, you know, nothing against guys that are bankers, but. Like, I just got a feeling that the guy from the bank doesn't, like, talk, you know, quite so ex – he's not quite as excited when he comes home to talk to his kids about banking <laughs> as someone that comes home and tells, tells them about big adventures, you know? I think you're right. <laughs> so, um, does that answer your question a little bit? It does. It's funny. Um, two people I know you run around with a lot, Steve, and then Randy Newberg gave me some of the best advice on this topic. One time I was talking to Steve, and he just told me, pick your battles like and and more so than pick your battles don't battle like 
give your wife the win on everything because you want to win all the hunting conversations. So he just said, I don't complain about the sheets. I don't complain about when we're going to dinner. I don't complain about the birthday party. I don't complain about the fact that she doesn't want me staying out late for X thing or Y thing or whatever. You know, he just said, you know, if you want to be traveling and doing all these things, just let her have the other stuff. Um, and then and I thought that was great advice. And then number two, you've probably heard Randy say this. He talks about um, peace over justice. Peace is more important than justice when it comes to some things. So those two things I keep in mind a lot, and it's it's worked okay for me so far. So. No, man, I try to, and it's very easy to preach that and, you know, much harder to practice it. (laughs) True. (laughs) You know, as with anything, but yeah, I definitely, you know, have heard those same pieces of advice thrown around a couple of times and uh, they go a long way. You know, you just really had to decide what's important, you know, and go from there. Have you guys seen the movie, The Flight of the Navigator? No, I haven't. You haven't. All right. Well, anyway, long story short, this guy gets in a spaceship and he goes around the planet, whatever. It's basically a time travel device comes back to earth and he knocks on his door and it's his dad, but the dad doesn't recognize him. Like, so for me, if I was going 150 days, I would knock on my door when I came back and there would be a new husband uh, (laughs) (laughs) at the door. So, so, you know, that's one battle you can't win. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Well, everyone's, Believe me, that has crossed my mind. It's like when you're gone long <laughs> enough and you come home, I'm not so worried about another husband being there, but like you walk in the door and you're having your kids be like, dude, you don't even look the same, you know? When you look yeah, at who are you? Speaks, they're always changing, you know? Right. And uh, you kind of wonder if that's ever, you know, it de- it's definitely on your mind. There's no escaping it. <laughs> I believe it. So, um, one other thing I want to, I want to, I'm kind of curious about, I feel like a lot of people are probably curious about, um, is what do you do as a producer for a show like that? Um, cause you know, I think people see Steve or someone toting around, running around in the mountains and then there's some cameramen, but what does Giannis Patelis do during one of these great big crazy trips? Yeah, well it starts a long time before the trip, um, the beginning is probably when, you know, Steve and I are just on a phone or chatting up somewhere, you know, waiting in the airport somewhere. And we're talking about, you know, like right now we're looking at spring 2017 uh, hunts and activities and adventures and just talking about what we want to do and where, where the show wants to go and, you know, what topics we want to cover in the show and, and just decide on what adventures, you know, where we're going to go, what we're going to do. Um, and then once we kind of get that a little, you know, more finalized, I'll start, you know, researching, um, the trip itself and just finding out if it's, if it's doable, if it's really going to be right for the show. Um, if we're going to have, you know, guests on the show or, you know, somebody might be kind of hosting us there on location, um, you know, get a hold of them and just kind of, get as much research, you know, no differently than you would do, you know, get research in a place to go hunt, you know, but just trying to get all the groundwork kind of figured out what it's going to take to be there and whether we're camping or if it's going to be a night in a hotel here or there. And, um, I'm lucky enough now that I have a team underneath me that, um, once we do pick a location, they'll, um, I'll just, you know, ask them to get flights for the crew, um, and that and the crew too, you know, so I do most of the hiring now of the cinematographers that work for us and our wilderness production assistants. 
Um, cause usually on a shoot, you know, most, I don't know about most, I shouldn't say, cause I really don't know on our shoot. If there's, uh, just Steve, um, by himself on a shoot, it'll be Steve, a camera person, um, a main shooter camera person. And then we'll have a, a long lens, you know, kind of specialist that will also work on production stills and other specialty cameras for doing time lapses and stuff like that. And then sometimes even yet we'll have an assistant and then myself, um, and um so yeah it, it's a big crew we can have a footprint of four or five with just a solo show and so when it bumps to a guest we're almost always at six and uh sometimes we're limited because of you know we just want to take less airplanes into a location or if we have to fly into a you know backcountry spot in alaska and so we'll drop a guy and just everybody will kind of you know split up that guy's responsibilities and, and just you know carry a little bit more on their shoulders so to speak um, both in weight, you know, and in just job responsibility. But, uh, yeah, so once everybody's hired and we figure out who's going where and what, you know, all the logistics, you know, get figured out. Um, and I try to do as much pre-production research as I can and just trying to figure out, you know, not only just about the hunt, hopefully we have like a good idea of what the hunt's going to be just because someone gave us a good tip about a hunt or, you know, just a cool location and go check out or what that might be, but just, getting Steve some interesting information about the location or the people, the culture and, you know, anything that's relative to hunting, you know, in, in those three topics, I'll try to kind of pick that out and write something up for Steve. At the same time, I'll write up what we call a treatment for our cinematographers that a lot of these guys aren't necessarily hunters and they haven't spent you know, they've spent a lot of time in the field. We definitely hire people that are backcountry savvy, but they may not may not have been hunters. And so I write up a treatment that if you've never been on a moose hunt, this is kind of what to expect. You know, there, there'll be a scene where we're, you know, getting off planes and flying in here. And then there'll be another scene of, you know, calling moose and another scene where, you know, this and this happens. And then, oh, the moose is a thousand pounds. So it's going to take five hours to you know, butcher and pack a moose probably. So be prepared for this and just kind of write out scenes, not to really write out the show, but just to really give the cinematographers kind of an idea of what to expect. Um, a lot of times I'll get photographs just off Google images of areas that I can share with them and say, Hey, this is what it looks like when we shoot this show. This is kind of what we would like the show to look like, whether it's, you know, I'll use words like give me a lot of big landscapes and big wides, you know, to really show the the massiveness of the, you know, country we're in. Um, or if it's a tighter place, you know, like say a swamp where you're just chasing rabbits around, you know, those shots aren't even available. So it might, everything might just happen much more intimately. You know, you need just need a lot more shots of, you know, the macro flora, fauna, um, just, you know, small stuff that's going on in a location. Um, so again, that's all pre-production. And once we get there, um, on location, obviously it's the logistics of getting everybody where they need to be, um, doing, you know, getting food bought and whatever for a camping trip, whatever that might be. And then we go into the production itself or the hunt. And at that point, um, I get a lot of questions asked to me, but most of the time I'm just kind of sitting back and maybe uh, taking notes on what's happening. And that way those notes I can use to basically write up um, notes that I can then give to my editor who will then again, not being a hunter needs to know like, all right, you guys shot all this stuff of this, you know, sitting around making this weird moaning sound waiting on a moose. (laughs) 
I don't really get it. You know, what was going on here? And so I have to write these notes that kind of say, all right, look at it this way. This is what we're doing here. This is why we did it. This is why it's interesting. Um, so during the shoot, that's kind of my main focus is to just to really be thinking about the notes. And if I feel like we need something out of Steve just to kind of drive the story along a little bit or to, to you know, I just need him to expand on an idea. Um, a lot of times I'll just have a quick conversation with Steve and say, hey, man, you know, this I think is interesting. We should talk a little bit more about this when it, you know, when it comes to you. And then um, with Steve, a lot of times it's not like, Hey, let's check in right now about what's going on with moose hunting. We'll just have like a kind of a grander vision or a grander idea. And I'll say, man, that was interesting about how, you know, the biologist talked about how the moose, uh, you know, interact with the amount of pressure of hunters in this burn area, wherever it might be about something that we read in that pre-research you know, stuff that I was doing. And then a day later, maybe Steve will look at the camera and, and give me something really interesting about, you know, that topic. Um, so I try to kind of urge him along a little bit, I guess, to, uh, if I think it's interesting, usually it's going to be interesting to the viewers. Um, and, uh, so does that, are you, are you the guy that makes Steve interesting then? Are you, no. the... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's probably maybe, you know, 1%, you know, Yanni in every, you know, show of like a little drop of, you know, extra bit of information that uh, might come out of his mouth. Uh, something that we've talked about, you know, through the course of making the show. But uh, no, it's 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 definitely Steve. He's uh, <laughs> pretty amazing, you know, when it when it comes to that. And um, a lot of people don't know about how much, you know, background he has in the in the writing world and just what a talented writer he is and how much that, you know, really um, kind of forms who he is as a, as a television host. Yeah. Um, it goes a long way, you yeah. know? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think he's great as a host of the show, but I, I actually am a fan of Steve most for his writing. I uh, love his books and the articles he's done and everything. But, um, but I got, I got something I'm kind of curious about that's related to what you've just shared. And it's also kind of related to this, larger overarching topic I was hoping we touch on and that's kind of you know the how hunting is perceived by the public and how social media and the greater hunting industry media you know all sort of forms those perceptions and I'm kind of curious you know with with the media or TV show at least from my perspective I think it's one of the shows that does a better job of um of showcasing what hunting is about and who we are as a community in a positive light and I'm just kind of curious how much of that, you know, went in on the front end when you guys are creating these shows and episodes and thinking about the direction of the show, whether it be an individual episode or just the overarching theme of, of what you guys have created over the so however many seasons there have been. You know, how much do you think about that? Is that something you think about at all? Um, I, I definitely think about it. And, and that's part of, you know, I wasn't in at Ground Zero with meat eater, you know, I came in about, um, you know, maybe a year and a half into it. Uh, so they kind of had that, they had their vision, I think fairly well ironed out and, 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 and we're on a path. Um, I hope that I've added, you know, to, to that and, you know, made the message stronger. Um, I don't think we, we necessarily have like ever created something like reactionary to, you know, kind of what you're talking about, but we've definitely, not we just want to make our own hunting show we we didn't like steve's always stressing that 
I actually watch less hunting TV because, and and he'll tell you this about writing too. It's like he, he a lot of times tries not to read um, stuff that's similar to what he writes because that can influence then like what you put out as a creative. And I think the same thing kind of goes with what we do as a hunting TV show. And so we try to really just kind of make it original and make it our own. And that in turn has become what you see. So it hasn't been like because we're trying to make a, a certain message or whatever. It's just like this is what hunting is to us and we're going to share it. And it just so happens that it's turned out to be, you know, what you see and kind of what people call this like, you know, a, a better way to portray hunting. What kind of feedback have you guys gotten on that? I feel like I've heard you guys talk about getting a lot of positive feedback from either beginning hunters or non-hunters. But I mean, am I, is that right? Do you guys get a lot of people commenting about that or talking about that? Yeah, it's constant. I mean, you know, emails and, you know, Facebook messages and, you know, every social media avenue you can think of, we get every day positive feedback, very little negative, you know, I mean, you always have haters, but really there's very little negative, you know, and um, it's definitely good to hear, you know, and, and some of the greatest feedback, you know, that I've seen that is and why I really I'm just like just so happy and, you know, proud to be a part of it is when we get, you know, like a letter from a senator or, you know, just someone like kind of high up in like conservation organization that writes us like a personal letter to thank, you know, really more Steve, but us for doing what we do because they feel like it's making a difference and it's the right message. And uh, when you get those people, you know, that, that had taken that time to do that, you go, wow, that's cool. You know? Yeah. I mean, not to discount when we get new hunters going, man, you guys changed my life and I'm so into hunting now and I'm cooking on time before I, because I love Asabuco now because of you guys, I mean, I get, you know, just as high off of that too. Um, but there's definitely something special when we get just some like, just that really heavy hitting feedback, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, what do you think about the rest of the hunting media outside of what you guys are doing with Mediator? Do you... I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Do you pay attention to the rest of the media world? Do you, you think it's, is it show, is it showing us off in the right light? Do you think? Oh man, that's a tough one. That's a loaded one there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, Try to I put, don't, you, put you to the fire. I really don't pay attention and really it just comes down to probably the, the biggest reason that I don't pay as much attention that, and maybe I should is because like, I have my time that I spend at the office and, and like a lot of times I feel like it's kind of hard to be Instagramming or Facebooking at the office because it just doesn't seem right in my head. And then when I go home, I try to really practice like just shutting it all down, putting it all away and like it's kids time, it's family time and that's where I need to be. And so if missing out on the rest of hunt media is, you know, if that's the um, what I had to give. Um, that's just how it's going to be, you know? So, um, you know, I mean, we, we all hear about this stuff. It's in the news, uh, you know, the Cecil's and the, uh, bear spearing as of late. Um, I don't, you know, it's, uh, well, I don't know if that stuff, it's the media when it grabs hold of it, obviously it's not, it's not great for us. Um, and it's, it does seem like sometimes when we're making a lot of headway with, you know, good positive that you get, that's kind of a big blowback. But at the same time, I think that 
I'm hoping that with the positive messages out there, that those just have like a, a stronger foundation to have longevity to where now, like the story I always tell everybody is I have an aunt who is a like full on Buddha chanting vegan, almost vegan, pretty much vegetarian, like just a, what I call like over the top woo woo. Now I love her. She's an <laughs> awesome person. I love hanging out with her, but like definitely not somebody that you, when you met her, you'd be like, this person's probably not into hunting, but because of the way that I've talked about hunting and portrayed hunting to her over now, this has been, you know, 20 years now. She tells me the other day that she's at some like art, she does art and and she's at some uh a uh like a show what do they call those at the gallery like a uh i guess it's just an art show right she's yeah, showing off some yeah. of her pieces a bunch of other artists there and she overheard some she overheard a not some strangers talking smack about hunting <laughs> she felt the duty on her shoulders to walk over there <laughs> introduce herself and say, you know what not all hunters are like what you're talking about and on behalf of hunting, da 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 da, and kind of went on to defend hunting and this like different version of hunting that she knows of because of talking to me for you know twenty years or whatever. That's awesome. So I'm hoping that that kind of stuff just like again that strong, it'll just have longevity where these little nitpicky things that pop up in the media because you know someone just made a mistake or someone you know didn't think you know about what they were doing about their action and it kind of blew up that that stuff's going to fade away. And even after that happens, my aunt is still going to probably, you know, go out there and speak on behalf of hunting, although she'll never kill anything in her life. You know, she asked, actually asks the ants to leave um, her back porch as opposed to like, you know, killing them with some sort of <laughs> sex side or whatever. Okay. So that like really wow. paints the picture who she is. She's not killing anything. But yet she felt compelled to speak on behalf of hunting. I think that is a really, really great example of the power of the disproportionate power of in-person interactions when it comes to this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like your personal interaction with someone and your personal representation of hunting is going to be much more powerful than anything someone might see on TV. So I think that's an important thing for all of us to keep in mind probably, you know, that one time that we interact with such and such non-hunter or so-and-so woo-woo person, you know, what we say, how we say it might be their one in-person interaction with somebody like us, a hunter, and that might form their entire perception of what this community is all about, you know? So that's an interesting... No, you're right. Yeah, all these little blips that everybody gets through their phone and whatever, it just doesn't stay in your head that long, you know? Yeah. yeah. What What do you think about the whole Under Armour issue? You, know, you you kind of referred to the spearing deal. What's your take on all that? We haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, so I'm curious about your thoughts and Dan's too. Yeah, you're probably itching to talk about it, I'm sure. Um, you know, and I've gotten a chance now since it's been a while. I mean, heck, it's been a month at least. No, I mean, the video's been out for many months, but I guess the blow-up was about a month ago or so. Um you know, I got no problem with people spearing animals at all. Actually, uh, when I was a young hunting guide, we used to always, we hunted wallows a lot, you know, and we kind of got this idea that we would one day, you know, basically lay down in a wallow, you know, with a spear. And when that bull came in there, you know, you try to spear a bull. So it's not like I've never thought about doing it. And uh, it's like I give, um, what's his name that did it? 
some Bomar, Josh Bomar. Josh Bomar. Yeah, Josh. I give him mad props for what he did. I mean, because it's like I know, and I li- I li- did listen to a podcast where he was interviewed by the Gritty Bowman guys. Yep. And like, you know, that guy did an amazing amount of of training and practice. He's like a collegiate javelin thrower. Like, it- it's like I would need two years of practice probably until I could think about going and using a spear on an animal. So like, yeah, it's um, amazing props for what he did. Um, I feel that maybe a little bit the way that it was portrayed on the video, there was, um, the, I think, and it, not my personal opinions, but within the, you know, kind of group I run with here in Bozeman and just, you know, people that are involved with us in work, you know, we talked a lot about it when it happened. And, um, I think the thing that got most people, it was kind of the, uh, excessive celebration afterwards at least like around here that seemed like it was just like a a little bit distasteful and maybe a little disrespectful and again i'm not saying that that's what he meant by it or that that's what he was doing but that's how it came across on that video and i think that that is like the biggest thing that we just have to when we are putting stuff out there in the media that we have to watch out for it's like it doesn't matter if it's legal if it's ethical if you did everything right you got to think about how you're putting it out there. And I had a friend of mine saying, asked me, he's like, when we were having this same conversation, he said, well, you like spend every day of your life thinking about how to make non hunters into hunters. And I'm like, no, no way, not at all. But I do spend time thinking about how to like portray hunting in a good light that non hunters, still be pro hunting and not anti hunting. And so I do feel like, you know, that's one of those instances where, um, you know, someone whoever somewhere along the lines after it left them and they made it, they maybe just didn't have that producer or that oversight or a dad or someone of a, uh, like, a just someone to say, Hey, you know, maybe you should just alter this a little bit because I feel like a lot of other people could have done the same thing, go out and spear a bear and told that story in a little bit different way. And it maybe would have been, you know, not blown up the way it did and uh, would have been a little more acceptable. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's my sense on it. Yeah, no, I think that you echo a lot of the things that are kind of floating around in my head. Um, what do you think about how Under Armour reacted to it on the other, on the flip side of the equation? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, again, I don't know the numbers enough. And I didn't really delve into Under Armour numbers, but I heard a couple of things through the grapevine that like Under Armour is obviously a multi-billion dollar company. I think that like hunting is like 20 million bucks for them or something like that annually. So it's like this mic, you know, microcosm of their giant company. So the people that are like, oh my God, they're tapping in and just trying to, you know, suck money out of hunting. And, and now they're distancing themselves from hunting because of this thing. It's like, well, kind of, but not really. You know, they've probably done as much good as they have, you know, if any bad at all for hunting. And so I don't really get that argument. Um, I feel that uh, that reaction was pretty normal, um, you know, with the way that it blew up on you know, wherever you want to call it in, in the media. And, uh, I feel that probably where the mistake was made is that, like I said, the right filter wasn't in place early on. Cause if I understand correctly, they actually posted the video long before 
and anybody got mad about it. Is that right? Is that how you understand it? That's correct. Yeah. And so again, I just feel like somebody in Ar- Under Armour wasn't there to be like, oh man, you know what? This is cool, but yeah, for sure. I I I kind of feel the same way. You know, they're a business. And hunting is a very, very tiny part of that business. And they're going to make a business decision. You know, I don't think, you know, I, we were on your podcast, Dan, talking about this earlier this month, you know, just after it happened. And my whole take on the thing is is probably exactly, almost exactly what you just said, Giannis. You know, number one, when it comes to a business, I'm not expecting them to fight on behalf of hunters or, you know, uphold our rights or something because that's not who they are. Maybe if it was a purely hunting company and they were 100% dependent on us, you might expect that. But I will always expect a business to make business decisions, even though I might not like that and maybe I won't think it's right. It's still probably the realistic expectation we should have. So in this case, like you said, Giannis, it's a microscopic, tiny piece of their business. Of course, they're going to err with the larger part of their their customer base. Um, then to the point of you know the video itself, I think that's the bigger question or the bigger takeaway I've I've gotten from all this is just what a reminder this uh, this is of the negative power or negative influence that one mistake in, like you said, maybe it's not a hundred percent mistake. Maybe it's just a little tweak of how they presented things, but whether you like it or not, I guess it's the, how significant of an impact one piece of content like this can have if it's not, if it's perceived negatively by a large population of people. And I mean, we saw coming out of like the Cecil stuff, you know, that was illegal stuff that happened over in heck, I can't even remember exactly what all was finally decided on, but stuff going on over there changed laws related to airlines importing parts and hides and different things from animals over Africa. That influenced tons and tons of people. In this case, because of one video that, you know, whether they did a great job with it or not, this one video got picked up by the media, picked up by the general public. They perceived it pretty negatively, and now all of a sudden we're seeing spearing becoming illegal in different places. So my big takeaway yes. is what happens, you know, this is like a, what's the right way to say it? It's, um, I don't know, like a warning shot. You know, really serious stuff can come out of these types of quote-unquote mistakes. So we need to be careful about what we put out there. We need to make sure that we try to have that filter and think about these things. You know, like you said, take an extra second and say, eh, you know, how's this going to go over? Um because the ramifications are really significant as we're yeah. starting to see. There are many methods of take that are completely legal in the lower 48 in Alaska, in Canada, that if you make a video of and really showed it exactly how it goes down, people are going to freak out about it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's legal. It's ethically right. I'm not going to mention what those, what those things are, but like there are, methods of hunting that are completely legal but to most people are going to be like ah you know if we hunted with bows and arrows the way that um art young and saxon pope did i get it right it wasn't the opposite the opposite was it it was art young i think yeah i think you got it i mean those dudes if if you roll if you read their stuff from back in the day they rolled around packing like 200 arrows into (laughs) a hunt And they would fire at all kinds of ranges and fire many, many arrows at a single animal to bring it down. You go ahead and make a video of that going down right now and see how and see how fast traditional archery or even archery is going to last. So then what about this? And Dan, I want to I want to get your take, too. But really quick, I'm curious from either one of you. 
So when we start talking like this, you know, when we start talking about, like you just said, Giannis, there's certain things that if we made videos of it, it would have, you know, huge blowback. When we start talking about this, you start getting some people saying, ah, stop your pandering. Stop pandering to anti-hunter. Stop being a big wuss. And, you know, we have the right to do this. It's legal. We can do it. I don't need to apologize about it, blah, blah, blah. What do you say to that? No, you. I mean, they're completely right. You don't have to. No, no, I mean, nobody's like forcing them to do that. But if they haven't figured it out yet, you know, laws are made and, uh, you know, rights are taken away by voting and people will vote our hunting so-called rights right out from right out from underneath us. Yeah, we're definitely and it. What, what scares me? is the knee-jerk reaction type decisions that come out of the stuff, you know? Like, there's this huge outcry, and then before even people get to think about it, you know, changes are made, you know? Laws are changed, or stuff happens so fast because of some crazy outcry that now maybe the media or social media or something allows, it allows these things to spread so rapidly, and then bam, this thing's done. Um, That's what really scares me. Yep. And nobody's talking about spearing bears anymore. I mean, I don't know. I've been in the woods for two weeks, but <laughs> just flip, flipping through Instagram t- today, there wasn't anybody, you know, talking about spearing bears. It's like it's kind of like that conversation's gone. Right. It's it's in and out. What what do you, what's your take on all this, Dan? You, we we haven't got to have your opinion on this whole <laughs> deal on Wired Hunt yet. It really sucks because I think there's a whole bunch of issues in this one instance that need to be that need to be talked about. And it's not, you know, this isn't the podcast to actually talk about it because it's an entire podcast by itself. But for me, you know, kind of a breakdown of it. Do I think that that hunt could have been edited a little bit different before it was released? Yeah, probably. Um, Do I think that hunters, you know, like the people who are producing this, who are, who are we making this for? Do we need to, do we need to make sure that we're editing it and putting it out, you know, to, you know, for the, the, the person who may get offended by it? I mean, how, how long until we're not showing kill shots on animals anymore on our hunting videos? You know what I mean? Just to, just to say, I don't want to offend these people. So they get pissed, sign a petition, and then my sponsors drop me, you know, I, I understand that there's, there's a lot to talk about in there. Um, I, I, I'm kind of fired up when it comes when it comes to you know Under Armour. They posted the video, shared it, uh, were congratulating Bomar several months before the antis got a hold of it. They signed a you know they put down a petition that you know was upwards of seven maybe under I'm a, I'm just going to say under $10,000 or 10,000 signatures before it was all said and done and when all that went through um that just shows me that a company who was wanting money from us then got pressured by anti hunters uh dropped these guys that tells me right there I'm not, for me I'm not going to I'm not going to buy under armor again. I'm not going to wear under armor clothing again. Um uh, because they didn't stand behind who were they were trying to get money from. Although, yes, it was a good business decision for them. I'm a hunter. I don't need to support them. 
right? Right. There and you know, and then there's the whole issue about you know, like the Drury's, the Lakoskis, the Eva Shockies of the world, the Cameron Haynes of the world. You know, why are you still supporting this company when the <laughs> when they just did not back the hunter on this occasion? You know, now we're talking about business again because we know that these guys are getting paychecks from Under Armour. These guys are going to be potentially loot if they stood up to Under Armour and said, you know, we don't like what happened here. There's giant contracts in place that we don't even know about, dollar amounts that we don't even know about where they could be not only losing, but Under Armour could come back and say, all right, well, you, it was your, you're the reason that you're dropping this uh, sponsorship. So now we can come back and, and take some more, you know, than what we've actually given you. So that's stuff that we don't even know about that could potentially happen. So, of course, the Drury's put out a vague response. You know, other uh, celebrities or entertainers uh, put out um, no response at all. And for me, that, I don't know why, but that kind of rubs me the wrong way because they're making their money off of us, right? They they have – they're getting their dollar amount, you know, their, their money to try to talk to us us into purchasing you know uh under armor gear i'm not going to purchase it so why are you repping it after all this happened you know these these are just obviously random thoughts coming into my head all at one time and no (laughs) no organizational you know no organization but you know so it's just there's so many things wrong and then we have the which to me is the most important thing is this has caused even a bigger divide amongst hunters right yeah right so this is all kind of past right now right we're we've we've forgotten about this so how long until these anti-hunters you know go to some hunter who does a really and i'm just going to use this as an example uh goes to the meat eater television show and says you know what i don't like you I don't like this, and they're going to find a way to get, you know, 10,000, 20,000, however many people to back these because there's way more crazy assholes out there than there are sane assholes, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I'm just firing off random thoughts. My brain's firing random random things. But I think this, this is it's way bigger. And there's so many topics within this this one instance that you need to break down and talk about. So the the long story of the long story short, I, I feel that it's caused even a even a rift between hunters. And when we need to kind of look past it and remember that we can't let the anti hunters win no matter what happens. We have to unite and and unite under one voice so that our privileges, our rights are not taken away from us. Yeah. You may, you bring up a lot of interesting things, which you're right. We could dive into a whole bunch of those, but what you just said there, right? We've talked about this before, but I'm curious about your take on us. This whole topic of uniting as hunters versus, you know, calling things out like this maybe isn't right, or maybe we need to tweak this. I feel like when that conversation starts happening, like I know you and Randy had a big conversation about the long distance shooting thing and how you said, well, okay, there's some questions about some of this stuff. When you start having those questions, there's a certain segment of the hunting community who will say, 
you know, if you're raising those questions, if you're saying this stuff, you're dividing the hunting community and you're helping the anti-hunters or whatever, whatever. What do you think about that, Giannis? Yeah, I don't sense the, like, the divisiveness quite as much. And again, it, it might not might be just because I'm not like looking at it in the media and, and seeing it there as much because I, I feel like I really haven't run into too many people that feel too outside of this issue, you know, you know, than I do or that we've been discussing here. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It's like, there's bad apples in every category and every group of people in, in life. I mean, for, if you want to go there, I mean, you can look, look at it like with the Muslim thing. It's like, in my opinion, all Muslims are not bad. Are there some bad apples right out there right now that are really making them look bad, especially in American eyes? Yes. It's like really, really bad. Does that make all Muslims bad? Not in my book. So this the same thing with like the hunting thing. And I feel like with the hunting thing, if you keep, and this is just like an isolated incident, you know, and uh, with, with the Bomar thing, I don't feel like he's a dude that's like purposely shooting like Steve says, shooting holes in the bottom of the boat to try to sink our collective boat. Mm-hmm. But if you have a person that is consistently doing that, that is just using rhetoric, that is not helping us move forward in a positive direction, and it might even again, it might be because he's got he's got the right, you know, he's saying okay things, but it's just the rhetoric. It's just, it's just the wrong way to say it. It's and it's going to shoot holes in our boat and bring our boat down. Well, I do feel like we have to you know kick that person out of the boat and say, you know, figure out a different way to talk about what you're talking about. I mean, I think the best thing about all of this is that it's just that we should just be cool with talking about it. Yeah. Because if anything, all it does is makes all of us more knowledgeable about all these topics, and then hopefully we can have that same conversation with some non-hunter and, again, you know, build this, like, just, like, stronger, positive foundation that, you know, at least upkeeps what we have. It, it maybe it will never, you know, grow bigger, but at least we can keep it rolling a little bit longer. Yeah, I feel like that's always what I end up on this too. Like we start having this conversation, and you know, like it always comes down to that. At a minimum, let's just allow the conversation and try to stay civil and like talk about these things. And we don't necessarily need to agree on it, but I think it's a net positive if we at least talk about this stuff. It should not, in my opinion, it shouldn't be taboo to talk about some of the stuff, to talk about differences in opinion or to talk about why maybe X is not what I think is the best way to talk about this or whatever it might be. Yeah. I think it's okay to verbalize that, talk about it. But I, I think maybe the, the key is how we go about doing that. You know, if we're condemning and attacking that kind of stuff publicly, that's probably the stuff that is not constructive. It just shuts people down and gets people defensive. Um, so maybe that I think I feel like that's like my big takeaway from this conversation. I feel like occasionally pops up throughout the years as we have these different episodes. We kind of jump onto this every once in a while. Something happens where these types of things get in my mind, and and I think this is something that would probably help in the country in general, whether it's hunting or not. Just being able to have civil conversations about differences in opinion would probably be a good thing. Um, yeah, for sure. But uh, and it should to add to that to your like the taboo of just talking about it, it shouldn't be taboo if you have a change of mind. If you, if we all have a conversation and at the end of it, I go, you know what? 
I kind of leaning a little bit more towards, you know, Dan's thoughts now. I, like, I just kind of rethought it and like, I like what he said. And that changed my mind. Don't get mad at me for that. I'm just like <laughs> learning and rethinking. It's like, it's okay. Nobody should get mad about that. That's funny you mentioned that. I, feel, I was just having this conversation. I was on an elk hunt last week and we were sitting there talking about it, you know, with all the stuff in politics, not to get into our specific political situation now, but you always hear this thing of like flip-flopping, like such and such said this 10 years ago, but this year they said something totally different. They're a flip-flopper. They're horrible. And I got, you know, you get to thinking, you're like, you know, evolving views, like being open to learning and adjusting your perspective. How is that a bad thing? You know, over time, of course, there's some examples where it's like obviously switching because of who you're talking to. And I know there's cases of that, but in some situations, like, eh, I don't think it's such a bad idea for people to be open to evolution and, and viewing things differently and being open to other perspectives, you know? No, not at all. Because I'm always hoping that if you're like, non-hunter anti-hunter that maybe you'll be open to hunting after talking to having a conversation with me you know mm-hmm. yeah i think and i think one thing that you know back to the under armor thing though is the power that the anti-hunters have right so and i, I also think that a majority of the hunters kind of forget about that kind of thing they forget you know, they, all they're focused on is what is right in front of their face. So with, you know, a majority of the deer hunting seasons opening here pretty soon, if not already opening, they're, they're thinking about themselves and what they need to do to be successful in the woods when there is actually a bigger picture out there all year round. Right. So we have to realize that if the anti hunters want to band together and, you know, do all these things, they could probably do it. But so, you know, when it comes to, you know, preserving our, our rights, preserving our heritage, you know, um, conservation efforts as well. I just feel that, you know, we have, we have people, the, the hunting community just kind of forgets about the important things, uh, when it's not right in front of them, when it needs to be in front of them all the time. Yeah. No, nothing's really like stung us lately like just like bit us hard enough to re- to really be thinking that way. Right. And I think to your point, it's something we always need to be vigilant of. And then also, at least from my perspective, I'm not really concerned about anti-hunters. You know, like there's that 5% or 10% or whatever it is that just downright is not going to ever be okay with what we do or anything along those lines. But it's that other, you know, 85% or 90% or whatever it is of non-hunters that are kind of in the middle. They're on the fence. I think that is, those are the hearts we need to win or at least, you know, and right now for the most part, they are generally, you know, okay with hunting in certain contexts. You know, I think we we talk about the stats a lot, you know, I can't even remember what the exact number is, but a, a large majority is okay with hunting in general. But when you start talking about, you know, hunting for food, yeah, everyone's up for that. But when you say hunting for trophies, trophy hunting, then it's down to like 22% are supportive of that. So there's all these weird little nuances that the general public, you know, how that influences their thoughts. But, you know, I'm getting on a tangent. Long story short, I don't worry so much about anti-hunters. It's, it's how is the rest of the general public perceiving what we're doing? And like people hate thinking about that. Like I know what you're saying, Dan, when you talk about, you know, how far do we have to go? You know, can we not show kill shots anymore? Can we not show blood anymore? Can we not, you know, do we have to completely pander and pretend that this is something that it's not? 
I get that like frustration and I don't know how far stuff's going to go. And like, I don't like that either, but at the same time, I'm also just a realist and okay, when X happens, why is the result? So when something gets out there that the non-hunting public is not okay with, it is negatively, it is making a real negative change to what we can do, our rights or our privileges or whatever it might be. So whether I like it or not, I'm still going to try to make some kind of change to reduce the chances of that negative outcome, whether right. I think it's right or not. It's just, hey, this is the reality of it, and we need to do something. Um, so it's either we change the reaction, we change how people react, or we do something on our end to make sure the reaction doesn't happen. I don't know what the right answer to that is, but for me, it's it's how can I reduce the risk of this negative reaction as much as possible um, while still being able to do what I love. And that's the trick I think for all of us today. I think, and I think this kind of is kind of where I wanted to steer things next is just how this isn't like just a media thing either. This is like an individual person thing, you know. I mean, it's not just the actions of some famous hunting celebrity that could, you know, have a negative reaction. It could be Joe Schmo Hunter. Um, a big difference, you know, is 25 years ago, if I had a hunting picture or if I had a hunting video or hunting store or whatever. The only people that ever would see that would be my friends and family, like the people who get me, the people who have a context, the people that are in my own little tribe. But now with the internet and everything, I might post that on Facebook or post on YouTube or whatever, and you know, I made that for fellow hunters, or I, you know, wanted to show this to my hunting buddies. But now through crazy ways of the internet, all of a sudden it ends up in an anti-hunter's hands or someone else who then, you know, uses it for some horrible negative thing. And we just don't have that control like we used to. So I think the, the onus is on the individual now to have that filter like you were talking about, Giannis, um, to at least at least think about this stuff, right? Yeah, totally, man. I use that example of the, uh, like, the little, like, when was the last time you had, like, your little flip photo album? You know, it's like everybody used to have one of those that had, like, 20 or 30 pictures in their truck and you'd meet somebody on a job and then you in like be like, Oh, you're a hunter too. Oh, at lunch, you know, let's, you know, sh- share our photos. You know, you, you know, you'd share, you know, trade them and, you know, you flip through the little book, but now it doesn't work. And so it was only really shared. You know, you had that filter already in place. It was only shared with other hunters. Now, yeah, you put it on wherever and it just, it just blasts out to the world. Right. Okay. So social media, good or bad for hunting. What do you think, Giannis? I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's bad for the world. <laughs> it's bad for humankind. <laughs> what do you say, Dan? I'm going to – Would Mark, would you be in business if there was no such thing as social media? Probably not. Nope, neither would I. And that's where it's like – I almost feel like – the, the power is somewhere else right now. So it's like hunting is existing because there's somebody else out there who doesn't care enough about it to like let it not exist. Does that make sense? Is that, does that make sense at all? You're saying like hunting is okay right now because people just, the people that wouldn't be okay with it just don't care enough to do something about it. Is that what you mean? Right. Or, or, or they might not be organized enough to a, a, quite attack it yet, right? I, I just feel like this is like a battle cry, 
right? I, I don't know why, but it's like right now this whole Under Armour thing got forgot about in a couple weeks. No one's talking about it anymore. It's it's water under the bridge. When <laughs> I, in my opinion, I feel that is an an attack on us. They just for they just organized and said, okay, we don't want you to support this uh, group of people anymore. So they they organized and they they won a small battle right so what what have we done what have we done yeah well i, I, well, I don't i don't think i don't think we've done too much of anything no i think it's not like a it's not a new thing though you know right. i mean this was one instance related to like a hunting like a visual like a, a personality or something but i mean probably every month or every week somewhere across the country, there's some kind of anti-hunting initiative, whether it be trying to ban the use of dogs for mountain lion hunting in California or trying to ban the use of baiting for bears in Maine or trying to... Or that uh, National Deer Alliance article, you know, uh, they were coming out with Staten Island not allowing, I think it was Staten Island or was it Long Island? It's Staten Island. Not Not allowing hunting, so they captured the deer and sterilized them instead. Yeah. Yeah. Blows my mind. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot of these things going on. And I, and I, I think, you know, this has been going on for a long time, right? And we haven't lost our privilege to hunt, but, but I think what we see is like, there's this small minority, right? Anti-hunters are a very small minority, but they're loud and they're passionate about something. And then you've got the hunting community. That's a small minority and we're passionate, but the difference is this. We as hunters, we're passionate about our own activity. Like we're passionate about what we do. So we put most of our time and energy and passion into doing that thing. Then you've got the anti-hunters. They're not passionate about doing something they love. They're just passionate about stopping us from doing our thing. So their whole passion, their time and energy goes into the action of stopping what we're doing. Um, so I think that's why we see like they're taking actionable steps maybe more often than the hunting community does sometimes at defending that. Um, but to your point, Dan, I mean, we do need to be ever vigilant. We do need to be, you know, getting involved when we can. And as individuals, I'll keep preaching it. We also need to do our own individual part too, to portray a positive representation of all this stuff. And then, get involved with organizations that are supporting hunters and give our time and energy and money to do all those different things. Um, Cause I don't think this is going to stop. Right. I mean, we had the Bomar thing recently. We had Cecil lion last summer. We had, you know, the Melissa Bachman with a dead lion and we had such and such person with another African animal. And there's always, it seems like it's just becoming a trend and I don't know what's next, but I don't know. I don't know where this all goes. But we need to probably do a better job of preemptively preparing for it, I would think. But how do you do that? That's the question. I don't know. You guys have any bright ideas? <laughs> but actually, before we move on to those next thoughts, we need to take a quick break to thank CamelFire.com for sponsoring today's podcast episode. And CamelFire.com is a daily deal website for hunters that offers limited time huge discounts on great hunting gear, including very often some great deals on Sika gear, which my friends and I have taken advantage of in the past, which is pretty nice. But uh, interestingly enough, in my previous job, before going full-time with Wired to Hunt, I actually got to know the founder of Camel Fire just as he was starting this business, as they were actually using some of the online marketing tools that my company had created. So 
That said, I recently reconnected with Camel Fire founder Kendall Card to hear just a bit about what it was like launching a company like this from scratch. Man, it was like everything was against us to get Camel Fire off the ground. And even at one point, we threw in the towel and, you know, our my wife encouraged me to kind of rekindle the, 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 the website, you know, as, as it was almost done and like, okay, fine. We're going to give it one more chai. And, and it was, so, I mean, it, you know, we, we launched it and, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was like, man, I can't believe it took us that long just to get to this point. And it was still wasn't perfect. I mean, that's, that's one thing I kind of learned about, about business and is just like, if you wait for something to be perfect it's never going to happen ever. Right. So it was, um, it was kind of a con kind of a, you know, it was a whirlwind of, of struggle and conflict and overcoming a a ton of things. And then finally just having enough grit to put it together and, and launch it. And so Camel Fire was a, you know, was a pretty, pretty humble beginning right in, in Mark's basement. And, uh, and from there we've, you know, we've obviously grown. It's been almost eight years. Wow. What did that feel like that moment? after all that adversity, when you finally, you know, turn it on and send it out into the world, what was that moment like for you? Well, two things. It was, it was, you know, thrilling and scary all at one time. It's like, (laughs) I'm psyched. We finally got this thing up. And then it's like, okay, people can start buying stuff now. I can definitely relate to that kind of shock of your thing actually launching and trying to wrap your head around that. And yes, you can start buying stuff now. And if you'd like to check out some of the great deals that Camo Fire has going on, you can visit camofire.com and check back daily as their deals are changing out frequently. And with that said, let's get back to the show. I don't know. I'm too pissed. I don't know. Yes. Does any of this make sense to you? No, I mean, it all makes sense. You know, I, I think like I've said before, the conversation is as important as anything, um, Amen. you know, and, and just, you know, I mean, Dan brings up a good point. It's like, what have we done? You know, and it kind of took me a while to, you know, think about that. But I do feel that like, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, you know, they've got their hunting is conservation message that they're trying to push, you know, mm-hmm. it's it is what it is. It, it's good. It, like all those facts are great and whatever. Do I feel like it's maybe sometimes it's just like we're patting ourselves on the back because when they put it out on their Instagram, who sees that besides hunters? Right. right. <laughs> Very true. Right. It's like, great. Good job, Mark. Good job, Dan. You know, it's like, <laughs> so it's almost like we need a message. Not it's like we need to form a voice. And it's, it's all right. Like what you said, you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is doing all these great things, but they're not telling that to the people who don't like us. Right. The hunting community needs a PR agency that talks right. to the rest of the world. That's that's what we really need. We need we need some PR help. And interesting, I don't know if you saw this, Giannis, given your connections back to Colorado, but I know Colorado has actually been, I'm not sure if it's their fishing game agency or who's funding this, but they've done like an advertising campaign promoting the positive benefits of hunting and hunting dollars and conservation and stuff to help the whole recreational public. Have you seen anything about that? Yeah, you mean like the like have you hugged a hunter lately? Thing? Yes, yes. Yeah. That's a pretty cool idea. The very. 
very man and like i think it that came out right when i was leaving colorado and um yeah you'd see just posters pinned up where there's like the mountain biker with his bike in one hand in the midstream like hugging the fly fisherman you know and uh you know it had the message right there it's like that's awesome you know yeah that message Uh, needs to be spread throughout the nation for every state yeah there, there's your... I, I feel like in rural areas, it happens a lot more. Um, you know, we have a good friend, Kevin Murphy, down there in Kentucky. We've done a, a, a couple episodes with him now, and he's just a, the hauntingest, fishingest fool you've ever met, man. The guy just gets after it. And at, at the same time, he's just so involved with his com- community and such a positive force in his community that anybody that's relate, you know, remotely – you know, affected by what he does is probably maybe not pro hunting, but like, like on the plus side of hunting, you know, they're not anti they're like, even if they're not hunters, they're probably not going to vote against it or, or, or speak badly ill of it because of what this guy does, you know, in his community and, um, how much he's involved and he's, you know, taking kids out hunting and just being involved in, just like boating access, you know, putting in new boating access and he's there. And so while he's there, he's talking about how like, yeah, man, I'm doing this for everybody. I'm, you know, personally, I'm going to use it to maybe shoot a couple ducks as I float down this river or catch a couple brim or whatever it might be. But, you know, he, he has a, just by being in himself and what he does in his small little community in uh, Kentucky, like he has a huge positive uh, impact and I think it's, it happens a lot in those kind of places it, it, where it's not happening. It's much harder to have that impact and that voice heard is like in Metro Chicago, right. you know, it's very hard. Um, but I, I, and I don't know how to beat that because it's like, I, I'm not really like making, you know, monthly trips there to give away venison to people and, and speak on behalf of hunting, you know? Um, Yeah. I don't like it's in the city where I see like a lot of those problems because it's just like they have no contact with right. you know what we're talking about and it's just all out of context and when it's out of context, it's just hard to make sense of it. Oh yeah, I mean people in these urban centers are so disconnected from anything. I mean firearms is a great example too. I mean they have no context again exactly what you said they have no context for a positive use or reason for having firearms. So of course they have these what I think are misconceptions in many cases, but they have these beliefs or perceptions and same thing with hunting. When you have no contact with it, when you have no context for it, it's pretty understandable why maybe these people, when they see something pop up on social media or whatever, they jump to this like, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Um, and that's a big thing. Like we're going to be continuing to deal with as more and more people move to these places, more and more people spend more time on their computers and less time outside, more and more people's only, you know, idea of what a wild animal is is what they see on the discovery channel or what they see in a disney movie um i think there's like there's very real challenges ahead of us down the road and i think what you said Giannis, maybe is one of the best things we can do which is just simply like every single one of us just needs to know that we are we could be that one interaction. We could be that one person. And if we all think about that more and make sure that anyone that interacts with us, hopefully anyone that interacts with us enough will have a positive, you know, vibe or feeling or perspective on what we do as hunters. You know, if there can be 
what, there's 12 million deer hunters out there or something. If we could all be like Kevin Murphy, that probably could make a pretty big impact. But I worry. Yeah, this. man, you, you affect 10 people and all of a sudden it jumps to 100 million. And then you're talking about, you know, a third of our population. That's mega. Yeah. I guess first, final final thoughts on this whole deal with the media, with non-hunting perspectives. I mean, I don't know. Is there any other action item that you think we should be thinking about or any final thoughts on this whole deal that, you know, we should keep in mind? Because I think this is something that we should all probably try to keep in the back of our minds throughout hunting season, especially during hunting season when, you know, the opportunity to, to share what we're doing or talk about what we're doing or demonstrate you know, this is the time that stuff's getting out there. So what would you want yep. people to be thinking about? Yeah. It's funny, man, because we were going to talk a little bit about, you know, growing up hunting whitetails in the Midwest and we can do that another time. But yep. I still remember like when we used to kill deer in Wisconsin and then drive back to Kalamazoo, Michigan, we had to go right through Chicago. A lot of times we'd drive right through downtown and we'd have three, four, five deer strapped to the hood. And then we had one of those like little trailer hitch, not to the hood, I'm sorry, but to the roof of like a, uh, it was like a Chevy Blazer, and we had one of those like hitch kind of rack deals that we ran for a while. And you know, we got all kinds of looks, but it's like nobody ever was like gonna scratch our you know car or pop our tires for it. But it's like these days, I just don't know if you could do that. You know, it's kind of like back then, even when we were you know when I was a kid. I guess I'm, I might be a little bit older than you, but like. There was a time when there was just so many more hunters, you know, not not when everybody was a hunter, but everybody knew a hunter, you know, and and that's changed a lot to where if you you know drove through Chicago now with that deer on your you know the top of your truck, it's just like you're going to be looked at as being disrespectful. But I mean, to your point about what we can do now, man, I think that the easiest way will go. With, I don't know if it's the easiest. It actually takes some effort, but like venison diplomacy as Steve says it, it's like, I do it here all the time in the office because we have a lot of people that work here that are, are maybe not even associated with meat eater or, or just like very remotely. But when we come back from a trip, like we just came back with a moose, you know, we've got hundreds of pounds of meat, you know, uh, none of these people were there to not, none of them. Some of them were there to help me butcher on Sunday, but like for the most part is me and, uh, three other, four other guys, you know, we butchered for six hours but I made sure that we had like a lot of like one pound packages of burger and like one pound packages of roasts and, you know, stuff you can cut up for steaks. And so that everybody here in the office is going to get like their three or four packages. And like everybody's so stoked on that. And they're like, there's just no possible way that they're at home eating that thing or walking home with those chunks of meat having like negative feelings about hunting at that point, you know? Um, and sure. just to backtrack a little bit, we're always uh, a friend of mine um, says this a lot. We're hunting. The hunting community has to answer to the lowest common denominator a, a lot of times. And I'm not saying that any of these people that got busted or that got blown up in the media are like the lowest common denominator. But that, you know, there's just like those bad apples that like that's who gets portrayed as who hunters are when we all know who we are, you know, but that's who gets chosen by everybody else to represent who we are. And so, um, I don't know how to like exactly counter that except that just, you know, 
speak well, you know, on, on behalf of all of us when you are out there talking to non hunters and, and don't be defensive because I don't being defensive doesn't get us anywhere. We should use the same advice that we use for, you know, getting to do stuff and making peace with our spouses as we do with people that are not non hunters, you know, True. and just like, you know, you don't have to be exactly right. You don't have to like win the argument. You just want them to walk away going, you know what? Hunting's probably okay. You know, mm-hmm. that's a great point. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think the venison diplomacy thing is huge, you know? Um, and just, uh, I, I think knowing, like knowing our animals, uh, uh, knowing the biology of our animals. Um, I was in a camp not long ago that we just happened to be staying at this church camp and there was, uh, other folks staying there at the same time as we were, and we were there turkey hunting, turkey hunting the adjacent property. We just happened to be staying there. And like, these people were like, you know, they were like, okay. They weren't like voicing their negative th- thoughts on hunting, but you can tell there was a, a little bit of tension when, like we were there and we were like, yeah, we're here hunting. You know, it wasn't like they were started asking us like all these like, you know, interesting questions about what we're going to be doing and what we're doing. It's <laughs> right. like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. Okay. But they had, they had kids there. So like the next day we come in at 11 a.m. with a dead turkey over our shoulder and the kids come running over and we're looking at the turkey, checking it out. And there's like nothing more interesting like than a dead wild turkey when – you've never encountered something like that. It's just like the colors are unbelievable. There's like all these different interesting parts. And if you as a hunter can speak to all that stuff and be like, yeah, this is why this bird is so cool. And this is why I love it. And yes, I go and kill it, but this is, you know, and just explain yourself. All of a sudden, like, it was like the kids were there. And then 10 minutes later, like the parents were there. And then like the grandparents are there. And all of a sudden everybody's like, whoa, man, you, you think you might cook up some of that later, you know? And it's like, I feel like it made a difference, you know, like all the kids got to take home some feathers and, uh, you know, I, I just feel like knowing our animals as, as more than just, you know, uh, the big buck, you know, with the big antlers, yep. uh, that goes along, that goes along with that I think are in our context. Cause again, it's like, between you and I, I know that you know that your hunt is way more than just your trail cam picks of, you know, whatever you've named him, Mr. Houdini or whatever. <laughs> I know that, but like someone else that looks at that from the outside without that context, they just see like, well, man, all he's into is these pictures. Uh, and I think all he's talking about are those antlers, right. you know? Right. So, um, yeah, I think just giving them the whole story, you know, it goes a long way. For sure. I think that's, you know, my one big takeaway or or big kind of, I don't know, final thought on all this is just to that point. It's look at every one of those interactions with someone as an opportunity to provide that positive context, to provide that positive example. And if you can do that so many times, that can make a big difference. And um, all those things you mentioned, sharing venison, knowing about what you're what you're pursuing and being able to communicate that that stuff all helps so much so i'm definitely you know i'm always trying to keep this stuff in mind when it comes to in-person interactions or social media posts and all that kind of stuff and i definitely think that hopefully if we all everyone listening and and all of us can do that this season and you know in the future that that might make a little bit of difference a little bit of a positive difference so i don't know yeah don't be if both of us are doing it right 
that maybe are, you know, maybe most of us just aren't actually putting our voice out there. You know, it's, it's just like, don't let the bad apple be your voice or don't let the, the lowest common denominator be your voice. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of, of sharing experiences, though, my, my last question for you, it's the last thing I'm curious about. How's the, how have the trips been going so far this season? How's the hunting season looking for the meteor crew? No, oh, they've been great, man. We had a super fun archery deer hunt in Nevada to kick the season off. Um, let me see. What do we do next? I was actually out for a, a Prince of Wales Island blacktail deer hunt because I had uh, meniscus surgery, which I got to say, man, if anybody out there is like thinking about doing it and you've got like some pain or some discomfort and they're kind of saying, yeah, go ahead and do it and then worry about the arthritis later. I highly recommend it because I, I literally wasn't even off my leg for a day. And, I, and a week later, I went on a moose hunt for 10 days, packed moose, hiked around tussocks, hiked up and down mountains. And it's like, I'm just so happy I got that done. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing what, uh, you know, what the medical technology does these days. Uh, but, yeah, we just did a moose hunt in the Alaska range. Um, my dad was on the show and uh nice he was lucky enough to uh call in a nice bull on the second day um it almost happened too fast i mean we've all been around enough to know that you take an easy one when it comes but sometimes for production purposes it's just like you just need a little more struggle before you get the the resolve right you know? and, <laughs> and reach the prize at like day two in the morning you're like oh what whoa, whoa. Did, we, did we get what we needed to you know to make a show out of this so um but no that was great um and we had you know just great experiences you know alaska as always is it never lets you down man it's uh just such a cool beautiful place it's so it's it, it yet man has been there a lot but it's still just so much less than down here in the lower 48 and everybody's got to go check it out um then let me see what's coming up we got we're going to hunt some uh, grouse in wyoming next week and we're um we've got a uh mule deer hunt in colorado which i'm real excited about um and then elk in montana and uh that kind of that kind of about rounds us out so nice it's go 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 definitely between here and december Sounds like some fun trips, though. I got to tell you, I'm very jealous of how much time you guys get to spend in Alaska. Every time I see you guys or anyone up there, I just keep saying, I got to get there, I got to get there. And I finally decided, like, this past month, like, I'm just going to stop saying someday, and I'm just going to go. So next summer, I'm trying to put together, I'm going to try to get to do an Alaskan hunting trip. Um, I don't know exactly how to pull it off. Nobody that I know has the time or the ability to go do it yet. So I'm working on figuring that out, but, uh, it just seems like something that you have to experience and I'm, I'm ready to get out there. So, well, I guess while I have you, Giannis, I'm going to be selfish here. Given your experience up there, what would you recommend for the first DIY Alaskan trip? Um, man, it's a tough one. Um, it, you know, the moose thing, I've, I've been on a couple of moose hunts right now and it's, it's a great hunt. It's interesting. The animals are way cool, but it's, it's definitely like a very, it's a pretty sedentary. I mean, I know there's hunters that do chase their moose and, and kill them that way, but 
most people, you know, recommend sitting, calling. It's a pretty sedentary hunt. Even if you float a river, you know, you're, you're going to end up probably shooting moose right on the bank or close to it. Um, and so, I don't know, if that is on your bucket list, you can do it. But, like, to me, um, I've, I've been on a few caribou hunts. This is the first – I got to kill a caribou last week, which is my first one, which is way cool. But to go and see, like, go to a place where there is the, the big numbers of caribou where you actually get to see, like, just the massive migrations, um, it's a special thing because you don't really get that down here in the lower 48. And, it's in, like, no matter how many times you see it on Discovery Channel, when you see it, you know, firsthand and you get to watch – a couple hundred or maybe a thousand animals, you know, go by you in one day. It's just magical. You know, I was actually, we were talking, Steve and I were talking about it. And I was saying, you know what, this, that would be one thing that you could go and see. And even if you didn't pull the trigger or fire an arrow, just to see that mass of animals moving across the landscape, a lot of those animals that have never, ever seen a human in their lives, you know, go in front of you. Um, it's pretty special. And to me, I feel like the caribou just kind of really is a symbol of that, the North country, you know, like you really, you don't, you know, you got moose down here. we got grizzly bears down here in the lower 48, um, black bears. We have deer, like you, we don't have caribou, you know, that's like, it's definitely a North country animal. Um, and I think that like, if you get to the right place, you are almost guaranteed to like, to get into them, to probably fill your tag. Um, there's usually lots of opportunities and most, I think just, you know, getting a lot of references and making sure you got the right outfitter that's going to work hard to get you or the right transporter. If you're going to go DIY, they're going to work hard to get you into the right place. If they don't get you in the right place on the first drop, you know, they'll maybe move you mid hunt to get you out ahead of the, you know, the, the, the movement of the, uh, of the caribou. I mean, a lot of the pilots we talked to, they're just like, they keep telling guys, it's like, you know what? Just tell yourself, don't shoot on the first day. Watch the animals. Look at what caribou, figure out what caribou look like. Because to all of us, you know, especially ones that grew up in the Midwest, just like looking at whitetails all the time, it doesn't matter if you look at a yearling caribou. You're like, oh, my God, look <laughs> at all those antlers on top of his head. <laughs> I'm shooting. Let alone you see one that's four or five years old. Um and they're just saying how often it happens where guys kill like the second day they're there because they can't shoot the day they land. So the next day, you know, they shoot like the first kind of big one they see. And then also they got to get flown out because their meat's going out and you're back at the you're back on the tarmac and you're like, whoa, hold on. That was my whole Alaska trip. Like I just went up there and it's over in like 72 hours. <laughs> and so you, with a caribou hunt, you almost just had to force yourself just to go up there and take it slow, you know, look and just watch them, enjoy it. Um, and try to, you know, not pull the trigger maybe until the third or even fourth day if you can manage. Um, but anyways, yeah, that would, that would be my, I think first pick. If I had to just go back in time and say, all right, I'm just going to go do one Alaskan animal. I'd, I'd probably do caribou and, and more just for the overall total experience and just like, just because it's a cool, you know, animal itself. But, uh, you just you, you to go get a caribou you're just you're gonna get flown into some unbelievable country you know and they do have uh hunts that you can do where you don't fly you know where you could go atv or even hike in uh, i know if you draw some of the permits on the kenai peninsula those, those places you can just hike in i mean you gotta draw that permit but um i don't know i think i i, I would just wait an extra year and save the money to get flown in to just you know 
get away from uh you know what pressure there might be off the road system in, in alaska man that's good advice i'm getting getting excited just talking about it uh caribou <laughs> caribou is definitely one of those species that is is very high on my list of just a dream animal to get to know and to see out there and uh it sounds like you said like it's a reasonable like you can go into that type of hunt doing it yourself with a reasonable expectation of being able to pull it off and you know like i feel like with a moose hunt when you're deep in there and with you or a friend or, you know, that seems pretty intimidating with you get that huge of an animal that deep in the back country and figuring all that out. But a caribou seems like if you get in the right place, it seems like it's a relatively opportunity rich type experience. And it's not quite as daunting as, as uh, dealing with that ginormous moose carcass on the ground. You can kind of, kind of approach it a little bit easier. So, uh, man, maybe one year from now, we'll be talking about my caribou hunt. I, uh, I hope so. And hopefully a lot of fly fishing too. So <laughs> I'm excited yeah, about man. it. So yeah, yes, we gotta let you go. We've been talking your AF here, but, uh, before we do what, uh, where should people go online to see what you've got going on with meat eater and your hunt to eat shirts? Where can we get those? Uh, meat eater is the meat eater. Um, if you don't have a uh, sportsman channel, we air at eight on Thursdays and right now we're in a, uh, fresh season. And so, uh, this Thursday we've got a Montana bear episode coming up, which would be the 22nd, which would probably be this podcast probably air later than that, I guess. But, um, anyways, Thursday nights at eight, um, maybe it's eight 30 Eastern, but, uh, if you don't have sportsman channel, you can go to, um, meateater.vhx.tv and immediately as, as the episode airs you can buy all episodes for 2.99 and uh you know some people look at it as like a lot of money but i figure for 22 minutes of uh good tv that uh three bucks is well worth it you don't you have it forever so that's a way to get around you know if you don't want to you know have uh you know pay for the whole cable package and then uh, Hunt to Eat, if you want to check out our T-shirts that my brother and I got going, it's uh, hunttoeat.com, and that's um, T-O, not the numeral two, so H-U-N-T-T-O-E-A-T.com. And uh, I think we've got roughly 20 states or so represented, and we have some state-specific shirts um, that, uh, you know, if you want to, you know, rep your home boundaries you can and then we've got uh another half dozen shirts that are non-state specific that uh you know cover a variety of animals and just you know some different designs some stuff that uh like i said uh, you, you can't find it at the uh, at the the big retailers so um yeah that's uh that's everything awesome well i i'm loving my montana hunty shirt uh it's been on it's been on a good number of trips to the mountains already, so uh, I definitely can can endorse what you guys are doing. It's good stuff. And you've got kind of like a Kickstarter type deal going too, right? For uh, getting yeah, people new designs. We do. We're actually going to run um, again. I don't know uh, when you're planning on airing this, but uh, through the end of September, we're running basically like our own version of Kickstarter. We're calling it Hunt Starter and we get just a lot of requests for people wanting, you know, an Oklahoma shirt and a Tennessee shirt. And, um, it's just hard. It just takes a lot of capital, you know, to basically come out, you know, to make another 30 start, shirt, 30 designs. So we cover every state in the nation. Um, so we decided to do this Hunt Starter campaign. We're basically, 
Uh, we sell most of our shirts for 25 bucks, uh, but for the Hunt Starter campaign, you can go online and uh, to our website and basically pre-order your state shirt for 15 bucks. And if we reach 100 pre-orders for, let's just say, Oklahoma, then at the end of the month, we're going to basically make an Oklahoma shirt and everybody gets a shirt for 15 bucks versus the normal 25. Nice. If if the um, anybody that orders, say, a, a state that doesn't make it to 100 orders by that time, um, we're basically just going to send them a new uh, we're working on like a new Hunt to Eat logo T-shirt. It's going to be way cool. And you're kind of going to get that as a consolation prize. So either way, you end up getting a Hunt to Eat T-shirt for 15 bucks instead of 25 and hopefully we've got a couple of states that are getting there. We're hoping that, you know, with a, with a little extra push here at the end of the month, we'll get a couple of states that actually make it to 100 and we'll do uh, we'll do a few new state designs. So, yeah, that's the uh, Hunt to Eat Hunt Starter campaign. Sweet. Well, we'll have this episode out before the end of September. So uh, people Thanks. have time to, to get on that. Very cool. Awesome, Giannis. Well, man, I appreciate taking the time to do this and chat definitely through some of these, you know, sometimes not so much fun topics to talk about, especially during hunting season. I'd rather talk about animals and adventures and everything, but uh, one of those things is probably good to to have on the mind and and chat through. So thanks for sharing your thoughts and perspectives on all this. Yeah, man, no problem. Um, I hope I didn't uh, ruffle too many feathers. And if I (laughs) did, then uh, you guys just need to suck it up and, you know, think about it a little bit. But yeah, I do appreciate you having me on and, uh, it's uh i'm always honored when i get to be uh get to be a guest on a uh, podcast um i get to talk a little bit more than i normally do on uh on our podcast but i'll leave you with one little thing because i know you've been talking about possibly making a move out west mm-hmm. last night i got woken up in the middle of the night i couldn't really tell what it was it was keeping me awake but finally i just like got out of bed and i was like all right i must have to go pee or something you know so I, I got out of bed and walked towards the window that was cracked open, and, and all of a sudden I hear, <laughs> I'm like, you got to be kidding me, you know? So there's a bull uh, outside, just raising ruckus. I go out onto my deck to go take a leak under the moonlight, and sure enough, there's two bulls and about 20 cows, like, I don't know, probably 300 yards, 400 yards off my uh off my deck just you know going balls to the wall i was like yep this it's all about right here i I gotta say i hate you just a little bit right now Giannis. (laughs) (laughs) i'm jealous well you're welcome to come and stay anytime careful what you offer because i might be out there before you know it (laughs) well thank you Giannis, and good luck the rest of the season yeah man we'll uh we'll talk soon mark and there you go another episode in the books, and I hope you enjoyed this one, and that it gave you a little food for thought as we enter the 2016 hunting season. That said, before we wrap this one up, we need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. Big thank you to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you so much for supporting those companies who support us. It it really does make all the difference in the world. And I actually just got an email from one of these companies saying that they got emails from some of you guys saying how much you appreciate that, how much you appreciate them helping make the Wirehunt podcast possible. And man, that is the coolest thing. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Now, with all that said, speaking of thanks, thank you all for tuning in today. Best of luck in the woods. And until next time, 
stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.